Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I do hope that you've all had a nice fall break. Mine's been pretty good, although I came down with a sickness Friday night. So if I cough or sneeze or do something disgusting during the sermon, um, I apologize for that. <clears throat> but uh, I mean, I'm excited to get to preach to you guys this morning. I feel like it's been a little while since I've uh, had the opportunity to do this, just to come and share God's word with you, uh, which is really one of my great passions because I believe that God's word is transformative. Um, if God has something that he wants to say to us, we better listen. And not only should we listen, but we want to make sure that we're people that apply that in our lives. And so uh, that's my hope and my prayer is that we're going to be able to first understand God's word this morning, and second, that we'll be able to respond to it appropriately. But before we dive into that, I just want to ask, have any of you guys ever made like a decision that you look back on and you regret, especially like if there were people that were in your life that were consistently telling you like, nah, I think that's not such a good idea, but you're like, whatever, I know better, I'm just going to do it anyway. Anyone have things like that, that they can think of? Yeah, maybe it was like that haircut that you went with a few years ago or uh, getting into a relationship you shouldn't have gotten into. When I think of this, I, I think of my brother, um, when he, he bought this car, it was called a Talon TSI. This was back when we were in high school and uh, he was probably about 18 years old. And my parents like advised him over and over exactly this is not a good car to buy. But my brother was kind of like, my parents would just say he was the most difficult of the three of us to raise. I have two older brothers. Um, it's okay. He turned out good. Now he, he's a police officer now. Um, but in his younger days, he, he would recklessly drive illegally. Now he just gets to drive a car really fast and it's legal. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, at this time it was like, okay, he, he would always get into trouble. He would actually run into trouble with the cops every now and then. And um, he would have, he had this car that he really wanted to buy. It was, it looked like that as a talent. And uh, he liked it because it was sporty and he thought it could go really fast. Uh, but it also had like all sorts of problems. So my parents were like, Zach, you're just going to be pouring money into this thing. It's going to be breaking constantly. Uh, but he decided to disregard their advice and just go for it anyway. And uh, sure enough, it's one of those things that he looks back on now and he say, yeah, that probably wasn't the best decision because he did end up pouring a bunch of money into it constantly. Um, but thankfully, he had people in his life that he, he could have listened to, and he would have been better off if he had, uh, but he chose not to. Now, thankfully, that story doesn't really, it's kind of lighthearted, it doesn't really matter that much, uh, because we can all look back on it and laugh now. Uh, but sometimes there are mistakes that we make like this, where people are, are telling us the right things that we need to do, and we neglect it, and it's not always so lighthearted. And, and sometimes they leave really deep and lasting scars. Uh, sometimes it might even have consequences that last into eternity if we decide to keep on neglecting the good things that people tell us to do. And so this morning, we're going to be continuing in our series about the parables of Jesus. We're actually going to look at two parables this morning, but they both relate to the same idea, uh, which is this idea that God sends messengers to us and that the way we respond to his message through those messengers is actually very, very important. All right, so uh, we're going to get into that, but <clears throat> before we dive into the text, I want to pray, and then I'm just going to set you up on some context for how this parable was given. Father, uh, we love you, and we thank you so much that we get to be here with you this morning. Uh, we thank you that you are constantly with us. We thank you that we can trust you. God, we thank you that you guide us and that you've given us your word, that we don't just have to grope around in the darkness trying to figure out who you are, how we should live, God, but that you tell us. 
We thank you for the faithful messengers that you have sent throughout the ages that instruct us about who you are, God. And now that we have your uh, word recorded, Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe, Lord. Just help us to be people that understand your word and respond properly to it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We pray that you would remove any distractions from us this morning and help us to focus in on what you have to say. Uh, We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. All right, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21 today. But before we dive into the actual parables I want to read, I do want to set you up with some context because I think it's actually very important for these two parables. Uh, If you've been with us, I preached a sermon back at the beginning of the semester kind of just explaining what a parable is. And it's really a short story that illustrates something else, some other truth, and there's usually some sort of shocking element to it that will teach us uh, something. Now, a lot of the parables of Jesus, if you go through the Gospels, there's four different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, They're the first four books in the New Testament, and they all tell us the story of Jesus. But they all tell it a little bit differently. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what we call the synoptic Gospels, and the reason for that is because they have a lot of similarities between them. So they tell a lot of the same stories. John's a little bit different. He never contradicts them, but he just gives us a lot of info that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't necessarily give us. Um, But even within the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, even though they have so much of the same content, a lot of the time, the order of things you'll find is different. You know, one author will put an event here, another one will put it in a different spot, or they'll put a teaching here, another one will put it in a different spot. And that's okay, because the gospel authors don't say, hey, we're all telling you that we wrote this down in chronological order. They don't make that claim. They have reasons for why they organized their gospels the way that they did. But as we move towards the end of Jesus' life, you will find more and more similarity that starts to come in the order that things happen. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all record the parables we're going to be looking at this morning, all of them happen in the exact same spot. So they're always told together, and they're always told right after a couple events I'm going to walk you through right now, because those are events that are going to be important for us to properly understand what Jesus is talking about here. So to set you up with some context, uh, We are entering, as Jesus says this, the last week of his life. So just a day or two before this, Jesus had entered the city of Jerusalem because he was coming there for a feast that they called Passover, which was one of the biggest Jewish holidays of the year. And people from all around Israel would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this. Now, Jesus at this time had built up quite the reputation for himself. He had healed tons of people. He had fed thousands. Uh, out of just having very little food. Uh, His reputation essentially preceded him. And this was big because the Jewish people had read in their prophets and in their Old Testament scriptures that there was going to be this Messiah, an anointed one that would come and that he was going to usher in a time of great prosperity for the nation of Israel. And so they're hearing about Jesus, and they know these things that he's doing, and there's great excitement. They're thinking, maybe this is the guy. Now, for most of them, they're thinking, uh, this is a guy that's going to come, and he's going to throw out the Romans, who were politically in charge of of Israel at that time. They thought he would throw them out, and that he would set up a kingdom of Israel that would become very powerful and very prosperous. So they're hoping that Jesus is this guy. So as he walks into the city, or rides into the city, actually, uh, people are going nuts. They're cutting down palm branches. They're laying them on the ground before him. They're taking their cloaks off and putting them down. People are shouting Hosanna, which means God save us. And there's a a fever pitch of excitement about Jesus entering this city because they all have hope that he's the Messiah. And he is the Messiah. 
He would just be a little bit different than what they were expecting. So we get that, and then one of the first things that Jesus does is he enters into the city of Jerusalem as he goes to the temple. And the temple was kind of the center of Jewish worship. There was a lot of animal sacrifice that was involved in Old Testament worship. This is the place where those sacrifices would take place. So it's kind of the the physical center of their religion. And uh, Jesus goes into this place. It's supposed to be a very holy place. And he finds that uh, people are there, and there's a bunch of greedy people that have set up uh, money-changing tables, which essentially meant you couldn't use regular money at the temple. You had to change it out for temple money. And they would do it at bad rates to where they could extort people. Or they would be selling uh, different animals that you could sacrifice and, once again, trying to take advantage of people as they come in there. So Jesus sees this, and he's enraged. And when I say enraged, that's actually very accurate. He goes, he starts flipping tables of these money-changers. He makes a whip And he starts whipping people and driving them out of the temple, saying that my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And so he kicks these people out, and uh, as he does this as well, he also, the, the sick and the lame, they start to come to him, they've heard about who he is, and he starts to heal them as well. So just imagine, this is not your average week in Jerusalem. (laughs) Okay, there's crazy stuff that's been going on. You had uh, the the whole city was at an uproar when he entered. He goes in, he kicks out these people that that had set up a business for themselves. I mean, that that would be pretty interesting, right? If you saw someone go flipping tables and whipping people, that, that would certainly not be something you expect to see on a regular basis. He's healing people that have diseases. And the religious leaders that liked the status quo and liked the position they were in, are getting really upset. They'd already had plenty of uh, clashes with Jesus, but now they're really starting to think, who does this guy think that he is? That he can come in here and do all this stuff. Who, who does this guy think he is that he's so special that he can go and, you know, he just heals on the Sabbath whenever he wants to, or he goes and he, he drives people out of the temple and all this kind of stuff. And who, who do you think you are that you can do that stuff? And so that's where we're going to pick this up because Jesus will tell these parables that he gives in response to that question. So starting in Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, we read this. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. In answering Jesus, they said, We do not know. He also said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. 
When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent a group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. <clears throat> okay, so that's a lot of text that we just read there. Uh, two parables that I think are, are, are pretty memorable, though, and I've always loved these parables, especially this second one. I'll get to that later for why that's so important to me. Um, but really, the parables are communicating a similar idea, as I was saying before, that the way you respond to God's messengers is very, very significant, Okay. Remember the context of where Jesus is telling this. He has just been asked this question by the Pharisees. Hey, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, Jesus is doing everything that he's doing by the authority of God. He's the son of God. But he's, he's not going to say that directly. He's just going to ask you a question instead. What about John the Baptist? John the Baptist was a guy that came preaching in the authority of the Lord, and the religious leaders rejected him. And so they didn't want to answer his question. And so Jesus is like, all right, I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. But then he goes on right after that to immediately tell them these two parables. And, and what he's getting at is the way that they respond to people that actually come in the authority of God with his message. Okay? And I'll show you how that's the case here. We know that's the case because of the way that Jesus interprets these parables right after he tells them. Um, the concept might be a little bit difficult to pick up at first with the parable of the two sons, but here's what's going on there. With the two sons, you have the father who is God. And he goes, he, he tells his sons the same thing, but they respond differently. The, the first group is identified as the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners. These are the people that Jesus said at the end of the parable, they're going to enter the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because although they initially have a bad response to God, they end up repenting and coming to him. Okay, it's exactly what the first son did. On the outside, he looks really bad. The father tells him to do something, and he straight up rejects what the dad says. No, I'm not going to do it. And that's exactly what the life of the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, that's exactly what their life says. God, you've told us what to do in your law. You've told us how to live, but you know what? We don't care. We're not going to do it. We're just going to openly defy you. However, what happened to the first son? It says that he regretted his decision, and he later went out and actually did what the Father asked. And so Jesus is saying, when John the Baptist came, 
And, and John the Baptist is a representative of the Father, right? So it's, it's the Father that's telling us this, but he's telling it through John the Baptist. He would tell his message through Jesus. He comes, and, and when he does this, what happens? He says that the tax collectors and the sinners repented. And he says that's why these guys are going to enter the kingdom of God before you. Because even though they looked bad and had an initial bad response in their life, they didn't look good on the outside, they did what the Father actually desired. And the second son is the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, these people that Jesus is butting heads with right now. You see, the second son looks really good on the outside, right? The, the dad comes to him and says, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. And that's exactly what the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees all looked like. They looked really holy on the outside. They had a facade going on where they could try and trick people into thinking that they were really obedient and they were the good son. But the reality is they weren't things that the dad actually asked. And looking good on the outside doesn't really matter. As you said, who's the son that actually did what the dad wanted? Was it the one that said that he would do what the dad wanted? Or is it the one that actually did it? And the answer is the one that did it. That's what Jesus is saying, dude, the, the tax collectors and prostitutes, they're the ones that are actually doing it. They're the ones that are actually repenting. You guys are the second son. You look good on the outside. You say you're going to do the right things, but the reality is you don't. And even when you see these other people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and sinners, as you see them repent, you still don't even do it. You still don't go out and work in the field. And so he drives home the point a little bit further with the next parable that he tells, which is a little bit longer and more detailed. And I'm going to walk through each aspect of that. And then after I do that, after we gain a good understanding of what's going on, I want to pull some points of application for you. So with the second parable about the uh, landowner and the, the way that he rents it out to <laughs> different vine growers, let's look at who each of these characters are. The landowner in this parable is clearly God. He's the one that owns everything. He's the one that uh, sets up his vineyard for success. He takes good care of it. The vineyard is Israel or God's people, okay? And why do I say that this is the case? Well, first, and first of all, who even is Israel? You know, maybe you didn't grow up in church and you wonder why in the world are we talking about some country on the other side of the world? Like, what is the deal with Israel? Why is it in the Bible so much? Here's the deal with Israel. Israel was a nation of people that God called to, be a, to have a special relationship with himself. We call this a covenant. He called them into a covenant with himself and he wanted to bless them not only for their own sake, but also so that they would be a blessing to others. Israel is traced back to this one guy whose name is Abraham. It was Abram that would become Abraham, okay? Um, and all of his descendants, they, they, they can all trace their line back to him. And so this is where God, this is the first guy that God makes this covenant with. And I want to go all the way back to Genesis 12 and just read what God said to Abram about why this nation is going to be so special that comes out. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So you see, Israel is not some nation that's necessarily more special or better or anything than anybody else. But they are a nation that God chose to single out to give a special relationship with himself, and through that, he would bless all the nations of the earth. Now, God, 
speaks to Israel, this, this, this nation that he was supposed to call out in this special relationship with himself, you see this time and time again. Uh, they, they get the law. They get to have a relationship with God like nobody else did. As a matter of fact, when God uh, had them, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. They were in the desert. He said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And they all said, yes, that's what we want. And so the, the stipulation is that God would have special blessing and guidance that he would give to Israel. And in response, Israel would be a people that obey his law, that communicate him to the world, and bless the world around them. But they weren't very good at doing that. Okay, God expected fruitfulness from them. He, he desired fruitfulness from them. They were supposed to be great representatives from here on earth. But in fact, they ended up failing and failing and failing. And so he would send prophets to them that would go and try and point them back to, hey, this is who you guys are supposed to be. Remember, God is supposed to be your God, and you're supposed to be his people. You guys are not living obediently. You need to live in a way that actually reflects that you are the people of God. And so he would send all these prophets, and that's what a lot of your Old Testament is. If you go as prophets that are communicating that idea. In Isaiah chapter 5, God speaks of Israel being his vineyard that he planted. And as a matter of fact, if you read Isaiah 5, which I'll do here for you in a second, the language is almost exactly the same is what Jesus talks about here with this vineyard. If you were a chief priest or a scribe or Pharisee, these guys that knew the scriptures really well, their mind would automatically be going to Isaiah chapter 5 as they hear this language, because it's exactly the same. This is what God said in Isaiah 5, 1 to 2. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. All right, so all the same things we saw that the landowner did, right? He took out all the stones, he built a wall, he put a tower in the, in it, in the middle of it, he built a wine vat, all these kind of things are the exact same thing Isaiah chapter 5 is telling us that God did with Israel. He expects fruit, but it doesn't produce good fruit, Okay. So I believe that in this parable, Jesus is telling us God uh, is a landowner. He plants a vineyard, the, the people of God that he expects to produce fruit. Now within that, there's an expectation that they produce fruit. And there's an expectation that their leaders would lead them well. And that they would, would help direct the people towards giving fruit, giving praise to God. And so the vine growers in this parable are Israel's leaders. It's the people Jesus is tussling with right now. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. They were supposed to take care of Israel. They were supposed to lead them well. But rather than pointing to God, they were only concerned with their own selfish desires. Okay, just like the vine growers in this parable. What did they care about? They didn't care about the fact that the vineyard belonged to, to God and that the fruit should go to him. What they cared about was their own stuff. They wanted to keep all the produce for themselves. And as a matter of fact, they even wanted to kill the son later so that they could have the inheritance that he actually deserved. So the, the wicked tenants are Israel's leaders. Now the slaves that are coming, uh, this, these groups of slaves that come to receive the produce that the, the landowner deserves are the prophets. I talked a little bit about the prophets already. These are people that God would consistently send to Israel over and over again to try and point them back to the way that they should be living. And unfortunately, if you look at Israel's history, they did not respond well to these prophets and they didn't treat them well. Jesus has very harsh words about what, how these prophets were treated and how the religious, what the religious leaders did to them. He says this in Matthew 23, 29 to 36. <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." So this happens just shortly after this interaction. Jesus would be, he just really starts to lay into the religious leaders of the day and showing them how wicked they are and how guilty they are. And, and they identified just the same way as Israel's leaders throughout the past did, that rejected the prophets, that murdered them, and didn't pay attention to them. That's exactly what the vine growers are doing in this parable. And so not only did God send prophets, but eventually in this parable we see that, God, that the landowner sends his own son saying they'll respect my son. And so who, of course, is the son in this parable? It's Jesus. Jesus comes and says, if there's anyone that they're going to listen to, it would be him. Right? And I already told you who Jesus was. That if there, no one had been able to do things like Jesus. I mean, other people had done miracles. But we're talking the miracles Jesus is working were on a whole other level. I mean, literally, before he came into Jerusalem, he had just raised a man from the dead. That's what he just got done doing with Lazarus at Bethany. So, I mean, there, if there's anybody that they're going to listen to, surely it's the son, right? But no, these, these vine growers, these tenants are so wicked that rather than seeing the son and realizing we really messed up and we need to, to give him what he deserves, rather than that, they say, no, no, no. This is our opportunity to kill the son and to take the inheritance, the thing that actually belongs to God, the thing that rights, rightfully belongs to the son. We're going to try and take it for ourselves, and that's exactly what the religious leaders did. They cared more about their own power and their own position than they did about God and his kingdom. And you'll see this even when you look at the ways that they would plot when you read the Gospels. Uh, the high priest talks about how it's, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And how if we don't take care of this guy, if we don't stop him, then the Romans are going to come and they're going to come and take away our place in our nation. And you see this, this overwhelming concern that they don't really care about the message of Jesus. They don't really care about who he is. All they care about is that they can't have the status quo disrupted the way that Jesus is doing this. And so we better take matters into our own hands. And if we want to protect this thing that we have, we've got to kill this guy and get rid of him. And so that's exactly what the vine growers tried to do. It's what they do in this. And so naturally, after all of these things have happened, Jesus asked, what do you think that the, the landowner is going to do to these people? And their response is great. It's exactly right. He says he's, they, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. You see, in the, in the context of the parable, they're able to realize these guys are really wicked. And they, they deserve destruction. They deserve to lose everything that they have. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. That's exactly what is going to happen. We see that it, it's going to have new vine growers. They're, these old ones are going to be cast out and new ones are going to come in. And this is a prophecy of the fact that the, the church age would be ushered in. That the apostles and, and the church leaders to come after that would be the new leaders and caretakers of God's people, the vineyard. 
And that that, vin- that vineyard is actually going to expand. It's going to become fruitful. It's going to move beyond just Israel. And it's going to incorporate all of the people that come to Christ. Remember how we talked about how uh, Israel would be a blessing to all the nations, that all the families there would be blessed through him? This is the idea that Gentiles, which is all of us, or most of us here probably, non-Jewish people, would be grafted in, that we would be brought into the people of God, that we would be one vineyard together. All right? So th- that's what's going on here. This is, I, I get excited thinking about this marvelous plan that God has. And, and so this, this is everything that's set up here in this parable. And so now that you understand the uh, components of it, what is it that we can draw? What, what, how do we apply this? How do we learn from it? How can we be people that aren't like the religious leaders of the day that heard things but didn't have the proper response to them? And so there's four things I think that we need to understand about God that we see from these parables. And the first is that we have a God that is patient. The patience of God is on full display here. And this is uh, something that God consistently lists as being one of his characteristics. And if, if you read about the fruit of the Spirit, as God's Holy Spirit comes into us, he produces godly character in us. And one of the things that's listed as part of the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Our God is a patient God. And that is one of the things that I have become so thankful for. Of all the attributes of God, I would say probably over the past year or two, the one that I've really meditated on the most and become so thankful for is his patience. Why? Because more and more I've realized just how utterly in need of his patience I am. Because I think that patience is something that most of us are probably short on. We don't like giving chance after chance after chance after chance. But God does because of his incredible patience. I mean, look at this landowner in the parable. How many slaves would you send before you came in there with an army and killed those people? One, two. How many of your slaves have to get murdered? Instead, he just keeps doing it. As a matter of fact, it's, it, he even sends his son. And it's finally, I mean, there's chance after chance after chance. I mean, to the point where it's ridiculous. Until finally he comes and he's going to bring those wretches to a wretched end. And we've seen the same thing with God as he's worked throughout history. I mean, you look at the Old Testament. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. We're talking hundreds of years of disobedience. And God giving Israel a chance to repent and them continually refusing to do so. And then finally, so much as even sending his own son. God has an amazing patience with us. And this is good for us, guys, because I'll tell you, I notice as I continue to just have things in my life where it's like, shoot, I see that I'm being disobedient over here. And I think that I take care of it. And then I look and it's a year or two down the road. and It's like, oh my goodness, I'm falling back into that same thing that I did there. Praise the Lord that he doesn't give up on me. Praise the Lord that I realize when, when he points out sin in my life that I can repent and I'm, I'm not fearful that he's going to say, Grant, I'm done with you. My goodness, I'm tired of you screwing up. He, he has a patience that he has, that, that he exercises and gives us time to repent. You see, even in the, the parable of the two sons, the, the first son wasn't actually counted as being disobedient. Jesus said, which one did the one his father wanted? They said the first one. The first one was disobedient at first, but ultimately he was counted as obedient because he repented. We have a patient God that wants all of us to come to repentance. And I'll tell you guys, one of the things that I, uh, I run into a lot as I talk with people that, that don't believe in God or they're really having a hard time grasping this idea that there's a good, all-powerful God out there in spite of the fact that there's so much pain and suffering in the world 
And, and that's a fair question. I mean, I don't know, some of you guys, you probably think that as well, or you have friends that think that's like, I don't buy this whole God thing. Because if God was good, and if God was powerful, and he could do anything he wanted, then why in the world, why do kids get cancer? You know, why are, why are there people starving all over the world? Why do these natural disasters happen? Why does genocide take place in different places? You know, they can point to thing after thing after thing and say, this whole world is so screwed up, and your good God sits there and does nothing about it, even though he has the power to? I don't buy that. And I understand the, the, the pain. I understand the, the reluctance there of buying into the fact that there is a good and all-powerful God, despite the fact that all this stuff is going on. But what I would offer to you is this, that the reason God is allowing those things to go on right now, and he's not stopped it, is because of his patience. Okay? God is hurt by the pain and the suffering of this world even more than you are. Even in your own life more than you are. God hates sin more than anybody hates sin. God hates death and destruction and all this kind of stuff. And he promises that one day he will do away with those things. If you read the book of Revelation, we see there's going to be a new kingdom that comes in. There's not going to be any more pain or crying or death, any of that kind of stuff. That's going to be gone. So this utopia that we all desire, it is coming at some point. But why has it not come yet? Why does God still allow the earth to go on in the place where it is right now? And the reason is because of his great love and patience, actually. Listen to what Peter explains in 2 Peter 3, 7 and 9. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, Peter's telling us there's a day of judgment coming that's being reserved for fire, for the destruction of ungodly men. But why is God holding it off? Because he wants to give time for us to repent. He wants to give time for people to be saved because there is a point, as patient as God is, that judgment is coming, that that patience will run out, and that finally what needs to be done will be done. Do not mistake God's patience for neglect. He will not neglect injustice. He will not neglect sin. And he will deal with all of it. And he will deal with it thoroughly. And this is why the gospel is so important. Because if a day is coming for the, un for the destruction of ungodly men, that's me. That's you. That's everybody that's sitting here. We're all responsible for the sin and the brokenness of this world. And if that's going to be destroyed and done away with, then how in the world can we expect to be in the new kingdom where that stuff isn't present? The only way is if we would be completely forgiven, completely made clean, and if our sin was punished on someone else. And that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. All of the wrath that God is going to pour out, he said, I will take that upon myself so that you can be forgiven. And you won't be 90% clean. You won't be 99% clean. You'll be 100% clean. And with that, you will be fit to enter into this kingdom. You see, and that's why he says that the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, they're entering the kingdom of God before you Pharisees. Even though they look so much worse on the outside, the fact of the matter is they're repenting. They're coming to Christ and his blood will cover them. If you want to trust in your own righteousness, it's not going to happen, man. And you're going to be part of getting caught up in that fire and that destruction of the ungodly. And so God is patient. 
but there is a day of judgment that's coming. And so my question is, are you ready? Are you helping others to be ready? Let us celebrate the incredible patience of God and let us take full advantage of it. Now, not only do we see that God has incredible patience, but we also see the position of God. That God is, is authority and a power above everything in both of these parables. He's the position of authority. He's the father that owns the vineyard and has the right to tell the sons what to do. <laughs> they may defy him, but he is in a position of authority to tell them what to do. And it's the same thing with the vineyard owner. They may defy him, but ultimately he is the owner. He's the one that deserves the produce, and he's the one that has every right to tell them what to do. And Jesus is pointing out to them, remember, this whole, these parables are being told in the context of, by what authority are you doing this? Who do you think that you are? And, and Jesus doesn't answer their question directly, but really what he's helping them to see is that by God's authority, prophet after prophet after prophet have come, and you have rejected them, and now here I come. I am the Son of God. I come in the full authority of God, yet you're going to reject me and kill me. But Jesus is the one that has the authority to do anything that he wants to do. He has the authority to come in and to flip tables in the temple. He has the authority to say, yeah, these people are entering the kingdom of God and these people are not. He has the authority and the position to receive praise. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was healing people in the temple, right after he flipped the tables, uh, the children started singing his praise. And, and the religious leaders were like, don't you hear them? You've got to stop them. And Jesus doesn't stop them. He says that, haven't you read that out of the mouths of babes, I'll bring praise to myself? You see, as they were praising Jesus, they were praising God. He has authority over all things. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. The position and authority that the Father has is the same position and authority that the Son has. And we see that in these parables. Jesus is worthy of all of our worship and all of our obedience. And not only do we see his, God's patience and we see God's position, but we see God's plan in this. God knows exactly what he's doing. We read Genesis 12 where a long time back, God prophesied the fact that he was going to bless Abraham, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And this is going to start to come to fruition here with the son. And even though in this parable it can kind of look like the, the vineyard owners or the, the tenants, are the ones in control, right? They're the ones that are asserting their will. It seems like they have the upper hand against the son. The reality is, is as Jesus would later be crucified, he thought the same thing, that darkness had won, that, that they had been able to defeat this guy that was finally causing them all these problems. But it's not the case at all. See, Jesus knew that his death was actually necessary. It wasn't like he was killed against his will. He knew that was exactly what had to happen. It's exactly part of God's plan. This was necessary for the patience of God to finally run out with these old uh, vine growers and to transfer ownership to a new group of people, or to transfer uh, stewardship to a new group of people. And so Jesus had talked about this many times in Matthew 16, 21. This is right after Peter proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Jesus knew this is something that he had to do. Look at what he said in John 12, 23 to 24. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and it dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knows all along the plan of the Father is that the Son must come and die because if he does, he will bear much fruit. 
What's going to happen is the fruit of the death of Christ. He's going to usher in a new covenant, a new relationship that's going to be offered not just to the nation of Israel, but to all people that would come to him in faith. And this goes back to that idea that the vineyard is expanding. It's not just going to be Israel. The people of God will include all of those that come to Christ in faith. And this is God's plan from the beginning. This is how he's going to rescue us. And so in this parable, Jesus foretells his own death. And he says this very interesting scripture at the end, after he finished telling the parable in Matthew 21, 42, he said, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. All right. What Jesus is, is drawing attention to here is the fact that the chief priests, the scribes, the, the builders, so to speak, of God's people, they've rejected this stone. They come, they reject Jesus. He comes, he heals, he works miracles, all this kind of stuff. They say, we reject you, we don't want you, we, we want to do away with you, we're going to cast you away, we're going to kill you. But that very stone is the one that would become the chief cornerstone. What's the chief cornerstone? It's the most important stone in the building. It's the stone that's laid first, and it will set the direction and foundation for everything else that's to come there from it. And so even though they rejected this, it doesn't matter that they rejected it. You see, it doesn't matter what the builders do because God says, I'm going to make that stone the chief cornerstone. It says, God has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so God has this marvelous plan that even though man would try to get in there and assert his will, they try to kill that son in the parable and take the inheritance, none of that's going to happen. It can't happen because God has a will and a plan that is going to supersede anything that anyone else wants to do to try and foil it. And he says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. He's the one that the church will be built upon. Now, we see that God is going to build up his church and set the direction and everything that flows from it will flow from this chief cornerstone. And so in this we see also, finally, that God has great power. This, this is the, the last of the P's that I want to point out here. We, we have seen God's patience. We've seen his position. We've seen his plan. And now we see his power. What men reject, he has the power to choose and even to lift up. And you see this stone, Jesus, the chief cornerstone, has an extreme power both to build up and to destroy. You see the cornerstone, it's, a, it's, a, it's used for construction, it's used to build up the house. But he also says this about it, he says, And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. So this stone is not only constructive, but it is also destructive. And this goes back to the, the point that, guys, we have a decision to make about how we will treat the messengers of God. And the ultimate messenger of God, Jesus, that comes, saying, come to me, ye who are, are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus that comes and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus, who says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We have the chance to decide how will we respond to this messenger. Will we be like the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes and cast him out and reject him? The, the builders that tried to reject the cornerstone. Or will we be the ones that, that come to him, that are brought into the household of God, that are built up into the church? This is the opportunity that we have to choose here. And whatever choice you make is going to dictate the, the way that Jesus is in your life. Will he be a constructive force or a destructive force? 
Because you see, there's judgment that's coming for those that reject. And that's why he says that this stone that is going to break people to pieces, it's going to scatter them like dust. Because those that reject this chief cornerstone, that fall on it, that stumble it, that can't accept it, there's nothing but the wrath of God that they can await for him. So my question I want to really leave you with, how are you going to react? How are you going to react to the chief cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected but that God has made marvelous? There's really four things. I'm going to do these very quickly. But four things I think that should be involved in our proper reaction. And just like the four things we learned about God, we're all P's. These are all R's. Um, we need to, to recognition. We need to recognize that Jesus has authority. He's the cornerstone. By what authority do you do these things? Jesus could have said, I do this by my own authority because I'm God. He teaches with authority that others never taught with. If you were at Fall Getaway and you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you would see at the end of that sermon, everyone was amazed because Jesus taught with authority, not like the scribes. Jesus has all authority. Do you recognize that he is God and that he is worthy of your worship? Do you recognize that he is your only Savior, that he's the one that had to die so that he could bear much fruit? The one that had to die so that the new uh, people could be ushered into the vineyard, into being the people of God. The next thing I would say is reflection. You have to reflect upon what you hear and you say, am I actually obeying? Am I doing what God says? Am I being like the second son where I think I'm doing what he says, but in reality I'm not? I say I'm doing what he says, but in reality I'm not. Or am I like the first son where you come to reflect and realize, huh, maybe there's something in my life where I'm actually not doing what God says. I want to repent of that and go do what I need to. And that's the third R, which is repentance. As you reflect and if you, you see that God is saying, you're being disobedient to me in some area. Well, then may we remember the position of our God that he has all authority. And so let's repent. That just means that you stop doing the thing that you were doing. And you go back and you do the opposite thing. So if you've been living in your own way, you've been living as king of your own life, could be in big areas, could be in little areas. You say, I'm going to stop that and I'm going to go and I'm going to be obedient to what God is telling me. I heard this week somebody said, uh, God's love language is obedience. Uh, you know, the five love language things or whatever, obedience, maybe it should be added on there, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so may we be people that repent of our disobedience and move towards obeying him. And then finally, the last one is just reverence. Reverence, that's a, a respect and awe for who God is. We've gotten to see some incredible things about God. I, I was excited to preach this. I told you I've always loved these parables, and, and I, I think there's a lot of reasons, but the, the biggest ones are just, A, I see God's patience so clearly in them, and I just love that about God. I'm so thankful for his patience. Uh, but also, I'm, I'm, my mind is really blown by his plan, like in just seeing that he knew what he was doing all along, that he knew what he was doing and continually giving chance after chance. He knew what he was doing in sending his son. He knew what he was doing in, in bringing in the new tenants of the vineyard. And God would eventually usher in an age where both Jew and Gentile can be brought together into being his people. And man, I, I see these things and it makes me want to worship. Have reverence for God. And so I would hope that as, as we've learned about him, 
that that would be the result, that we would, we would react to this way that we say, God, you are great, that you're awesome, that we would have the same reaction that Jesus talked about with the stones, where it says that, that it is marvelous in our eyes what Jesus has done. You know, uh, my, one of my good friends, Tori, was just in town. He, he preached at Fall Getaway for us, and one of the conversations that we were having, we were talking about preaching, and uh, he said, you know, my main goal when I preach anymore isn't even really education. Like, not that education, but like, we definitely want to teach well. We want to help people to learn. But really, my main goal is worship. Like, I just want to help people worship God. I want to point them to, the, to his greatness. And I know that that's going to be what changes everything. And so my hope is we've sat here this morning and you've gotten to understand his word. My hope is that that has inspired some sort of reverence in you for who God is. That every time you open up your Bible and you see how good God is, you see his greatness, that you would be inspired to worship. Because that's even going to be what leads your obedience, right? As you see his greatness, you're going to want to obey him. And so guys, we have the opportunity to respond right now um, through some musical worship. And, you know, a lot of time I, I think that we just sing because we're used to that in church, right? It's like, oh, that's what you do. You listen to the sermon, you sing songs. But I want you to really think about what you're doing. Like, we're going to have an opportunity to, sit, to stand here together and to, to sing the praises of our God. We're not just singing words on a screen. Like, there's no audience that we're, we're singing for. Nobody bought tickets to this show, you know, nothing like that. We're standing here and we're getting to sing praises to an actual God that hears us. And, and the cool thing is, this is a great opportunity we get to do that through music, but you also get to do that every day and in every aspect of your life. That you get to go forth and, and, and you get to worship him not just in singing songs, but in, in the way that you obey him and the way that you love others, in the way that you speak about him, and the way that you speak to him, and all these kind of things, we have the opportunity to love God, to worship him, to respect him, to lift him up, both in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. And so that's my prayer, is that we would be a people that respond well to this message from God. Let's pray. <coughs> God, we thank you so much uh, for who you are. I thank you for your incredible patience, for your, your position that you are God above us, that you have more authority and power than anybody else. God, we thank you for your marvelous plan that you lift up what others reject. God, we thank you that uh, you, you have allowed us to come in and to, to be part of your people, that we've been blessed through Christ. And God, we thank you for your infinite power. We know that there is nobody that can compare to you. And so, Lord, uh, we just ask as we move into this time of musical worship that you would minister to us in our hearts, that you would uh, just really rise up within us a spirit of worship that lasts not only for the, the next few songs that we sing, but into the, the, the rest of our week and really into the rest of our lives, God, that we would be people that daily live in awe of you and that that would drive our obedience and our closeness God, let us be people that always give you the fruits of your vineyard, that always give you what you deserve, God. We love you. We thank you for who you are. And we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Mm -hmm.